0: Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson. Our Whistle Stop today is October 18th, 1938, and we are in Hartford, Connecticut at the Connecticut Council of Republican Women. It is less than a month before the November election and nearly 80 years from the moment in which you find yourself right now. That is, if you are a hot-off-the-presses presses whistle stopped listener, which you are undoubtedly, but if you are listening to this many years hence, well, then welcome to the past. A fellow of very orderly manners whose neck and chin are piled high above his collar, which rises straight and immovable, like the Hoover Dam. And he is speaking on the topic of undermining representative government. That is the title of his speech. And in it, he is lambasting the sitting president for his economic policies, And the president's thirst for one-man rule. This president has hoodwinked Congress into giving up its power and loosening its spine, claims our speaker. They in Congress have become nothing but yes-men. The speaker stabs for an analogy. Mr. Hitler also has a parliament, says the speaker, comparing the sitting president to the Nazi leader who in October of 1938 has moved through the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. The streets filled with ethnic Germans giving him the Nazi salute. Our speaker continues talking about the German parliament. You may not know it. It, the German parliament, was also once upon a time an independent arm of the German government. But Mr. Hitler has rearranged its function. And then the speaker goes on to quote Hitler. Hitler said individual members may advise but never decide. That is the exclusive prerogative of the responsible president. Well, who is this speaker comparing the sitting president to Hitler? Well, it's none other than Herbert Hoover, the 31st president of the United States. And he's putting the wood to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd president of the United States. The purpose of the shellacking is to build support for Republican candidates in 1938. If Republicans can win, they might be able to stop what Hoover called the malignant growth of personal power. Does this sound familiar? In the summer and fall of 2018, Barack Obama, former president, extended his hibernation to campaign for Democrats. And at rallies, he has taken on the incumbent president.
1: I am here to tell you, that even if you don't agree with me or Democrats on policy, even if you believe in more libertarian economic theories, even if you are an evangelical and our position on certain social issues uh, is a bridge too far, even if you you think my assessment of immigration is is mistaken and, and the Democrats aren't serious enough about Immigration enforcement. I'm here to tell you that you should still be concerned with our current course and should still want to see a restoration of honesty and decency and lawfulness in our government.
0: President Obama was making a departure from the previous behavior of George W. Bush, the previous president. He, George W. Bush, didn't criticize President Obama. Here, former President Bush is explaining his reasoning to Sean Hannity. I don't think it's good for the country to have a former president uh, undermine a current president. I think it's bad for the presidency for that matter. But while George W. Bush had put this norm into practice and held fast to it, it was not a norm for all time, as our Hoover description has demonstrated. It was once quite okay for a president to campaign against the policies and party of the man who came after him. Before we go back to Hoover, we'll roll back the whistle-stop research dial to the year of 1917. Teddy Roosevelt didn't just take off the gloves when it came to criticizing President Wilson. He built a boxing ring and set up the stands and prepared for a multi-year bout. For two years, Teddy Roosevelt was a columnist for the Kansas City Star, writing a weekly column. The first one, written in the run-up to the First World War, criticized Wilson for his lack of preparation for combat against the Germans. The last two paragraphs read, "...we are in the eighth month since Germany went to war against us and we are still only at the receiving end of the game. We have not in France a single man on the fighting line. The first American killed was a doctor. No German soldier is yet in jeopardy from anything we have done. The military work we are now doing is work of preparation. It should have been done just three years ago." Nine-tenths of wisdom is being wise in time. The editorials from the former president criticizing Wilson, and by the way, by by today's standards, and even by Hoover's uh, standards, which we'll get to later, that was pretty soft soap in terms of attacking the former president, but it would get a little pepperier over time. But nevertheless, the idea that Roosevelt would attack Wilson, especially on the question of national security and America's uh, fight against the Germans, or not, or lack of fight, but anyway, America's security was not met with a lot of success. The response did not deafen the ex-president's ears with the cheers of acclaim. Instead, there was shouting. Southern newspapers did not like it at all. Their statements about the series of articles from the former president went from one editorial, which said, we find further publication inadvisable in our territory, to another paper that apologized to readers for ever having allowed the Roosevelt articles to run at all. One newspaper wrote that the president should stand by the president or he should be stood before a stone wall and shot. When the newspapers themselves weren't angry, they were encouraged to be angry. The Daily Star, which had run the Roosevelt essays or, or editorials, was sent this letter from the public library at Fulton, Missouri. The Star was barred from the public library at Fulton, Missouri, which, by the way, was a very democratic town in central Missouri, uh, for this reason. Disloyalty to the present administration, and the, and, the, and the Star newspaper was sent this notice. Dear sir, by order from the library board of the public library, I am advised to have you discontinue our subscription to the Daily Star and the Times. Disloyalty to the present administration is the reason given for the action taken. The Hostility continued. One angry fellow was the mayor of Abilene, and he wrote the editor of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, which is where the editorials had been syndicated, and he wrote the following. The Roosevelt article appearing in your paper of this date is nothing short of the expression of the thoughts of a seditious conspirator who should be shot dead, and the editor-in-chief of your paper should be tarred and feathered for publishing it, and your paper should be excluded from the mails of the United States. You may publish this if you wish, and stop my paper. Colonel Roosevelt, the former president, referred to the incident, saying, Recently, the mayor of Abilene, Texas, expressed his disapproval of my pointing out that we as a nation had wholly failed to prepare by saying that I was a seditious conspirator who ought to be shot dead and that the editor of the newspaper publishing the article should be tarred and feathered. Although differing in method of expression, this slight homicidal bleat of the gentle-souled and doubtless entirely harmless – Mayor of Abilene, Texas, is exactly similar in thought to the utterances of all these sheep-like creatures who raise quavering or incoherent protests against every honest and patriotic man who points out the damage done by our failure to prepare. So, Teddy Roosevelt taking on the manhood here of the Mayor of Abilene. So, Roosevelt kept on writing those editorials. Here he is talking about Wilson's pitch on the League of Nations, which, as you all know, was the subject of a previous whistle-stop. Here is Teddy Roosevelt weighing in on Wilson uh, as he tries to make the pitch for the League of Nations. He is a conscienceless rhetorician, and he will always get the well-meaning, foolish creatures who are misled by names, in this case, the naming of the League of Nations. At present, anything he says about the World League is in the domain of empty and windy eloquence. The important point will be reached when he has to make definite the thing for which he stands. Well, of course, Wilson did make definite the thing for which he stood, tried to sell the League of Nations to the country, and was failing and failed. Roosevelt also responded more broadly to the idea that he would take on the sitting chief executive with this appeal to patriotism. To announce that there must be no criticism of the president or that we are to stand by the president right or wrong is not only unpatriotic and servile, but is morally treasonable to the American public. This, of course, then is a quote you may even have heard, but that sets the standard for criticizing as an act of patriotism, uh, which, of course, is the exact opposite of what he was being accused of. One quick aside, one of his essays had nothing to do with Wilson, but it was an editorial called Sacrifices on Cold Altars. Roosevelt addressed a mother whose son had died of influenza while in the Navy, and the mother had said that she had given her boy proudly to her country, but she wished that, quote, only he could have died with a gun in his hand. And Roosevelt wrote his editorial and said this, The mother or wife whose son or husband has died, whether in battle or by fever— or in the accident inevitable in hurriedly preparing a modern army for war. Must never feel that the sacrifice has been laid on a cold altar. There is no gradation of honor among these gallant men, and no essential gradation of service. They all died that we might live. Our debt is to all of them. This essay, though he wasn't a president, this is how norms are built, or at least how they're maintained. A president past or current, takes the opportunity of a moment to shore up the national honor and the power of service of any kind. This notion of service being of equal value no matter how you die, because it's based on your sacrifice to the country, which we all owe a debt to, is, of course, in great contrast to President Trump, who as a candidate, said about John McCain's time as a POW, I like heroes who weren't captured. So now back to Hoover. 1932, when Hoover got his pants handed to him by FDR, the two men really did not like each other. Hoover called Roosevelt a chameleon on plaid, a really great expression, and FDR preferred the image of Hoover as a fat, timid capon. For Hoover, like Obama, the central policy argument against the incumbent was the economy. He traced the recovery from the end of his administration, Hoover did, and said the charge that people were, quote, neglected and starving when his administration ended six years ago— was a prevarication. So while Hoover was taking um, credit for any uptick that had happened since his administration, he was also, of course, criticizing the New Deal because at this period of time, the economy had it had come back to life after the initial burst of the New Deal, after FDR's election, but by the spring of 1938, 5 million people who had found jobs in 19, since 1933 were out of work again, and nearly 14% of the population was on relief. So this was in the slump uh, after the first burst of New Deal and before the prosperity that would be kicked in by the Second World War. Okay, so he's basically saying to blame the past is a prevarication, and then he said the New Deal, quote, had experimented, experimented with the American way of life for six years at a dreadful cost in human misery and despair. Hoover said, quote, the major problem America confronts today is whether we shall shape our economic system on free men or whether we shall introduce it into it, a mixture of personal power with coerced or regimented men. This is the flaming conflict in the world today. The central charge was that FDR had inserted too much government into the American free market system. Hoover again. We have seen personal control of expenditures. We have seen the attempt to mix a system of free enterprise a system of, and, a, and a system of creeping collectivism. We have seen a vindictive campaign to array class against class and group against group. All this is the destruction of freedom and prosperity. Hoover continued, the campaign was not a conflict between Republican and Democratic policies. It is a conflict between two ideas of life for America. The conflict that started in 1933 is a conflict between old and new American life. It is a conflict between age-old personal government and a government of free men under the rule of law. So what was Hoover asking for? He was asking for a Congress that was not supine. Give us an election of a new Congress of independent men and watch America come back. Modern listeners would be amused at the argument because Hoover's Hoover made a few claims. One of the biggest ones was that the Congress was totally under the rule of the president, which, of course, would seem very familiar because the Republican leadership in the House and Senate is essentially under the rule, either explicit or implicit of the president, explicit. Meaning, you're going to do this or that piece of legislation. Implicit, meaning that if they go crossways to the president, he will punish them in their districts. Uh, and any senator or congressman who, who is a Republican who bucks the president can be assured of a primary opponent who will have the, the magination against them. A magination, not to be confused with machination. It's hard to convey. Just how consistent this message from Hoover was about how awful it was that Congress was essentially just doing whatever the president wanted. If we examine, said Hoover, the fate of wrecked republics throughout the world, we find the first symptoms in the weakening of the legislative arm. Subservience in legislative halls is the spot where liberty and political morals commit suicide. It was unheard of, said Hoover, to simply do the president's bidding for Congress to do the president's bidding. Of course, he'd be shocked today. As Congress was receding, FDR was threatening those who wouldn't do his bidding, as you whistle-stop listeners know from our episode devoted to the topic of the purge in 1938, when FDR tried to purge Democrats who would not support his programs. Chief among those programs was FDR's request to reorganize the executive branch to make it larger and more responsive to the challenges of the time. Now, of course, Hoover was picking whatever weaponry he could to attack the incumbent, but or attack his successor. But, of course, this tension is built in the presidency. A president who wants to act quickly and wants more speed, either with the the free assent of of a supine Congress or uh, more power in his executive agency, he wants to act quickly. And the people expect him to act quickly. But the legislature... Congress is supposed to still be powerful enough to be a break on a president so that the president doesn't do too much too fast that is at odds with the national consensus. So what did Hoover mean when he talked about losing political morals? He was talking about the slow slippage of standards that would, that would cause the public to simply let the despot roll over them. Liberty never dies, Hoover said, from direct attack. No man ever arises and says, down with liberty. But, he continued, liberty has died in 14 countries in a single score of years from weakening its safeguards, from demoralization of the moral stamina of the people. There is an echo in this point in what President Obama has been saying. So what Hoover calls the demoralization of the moral stamina of the people, Obama, in this clip you're about to hear, simply labels as indifference.
1: In the end, the the threat to our democracy doesn't just come from Donald Trump or the current batch of Republicans in Congress, or the Koch brothers and their lobbyists, or you know, too much compromise from Democrats, or Russian hacking. The biggest threat to our democracy is indifference. The biggest threat to our democracy is cynicism. A Cynicism that led too many people to turn away from politics and stay home on Election Day.
0: Though there was no norm against the veteran president taking after an incumbent, it was seen as desperate and low class, especially since Hoover had been so thoroughly by uh, defeated by FDR in 1932. When you lose that badly, you don't really have a case you can make. Al Smith, former governor of New York, who'd lost to Hoover in 1928, said, "When a man is out of politics, let him stay out." Governor A. Harry Moore, Democrat for Senate in the New Jersey race, labeled Hoover a voice from the grave. Now we turn our examination of presidents criticizing their successors to Truman and Eisenhower. We'll spend less time on the the subsequent ones than we have on Hoover and uh, and Teddy Roosevelt, mostly because they're just not as fun as Hoover and TR. But here's what Truman said about Eisenhower during – He took shots a variety of different times. And even as late as 1961, as Eisenhower was leaving office, here's what Truman said. All I'll say now is that when the people elect a man to the presidency who doesn't take care of the job, they've got nobody to blame but themselves. The trouble with Eisenhower is he's just a coward. He hasn't got any backbone at all. Ike didn't know anything. And all the time he was in office, he didn't learn a thing. Well, that's kind of harsh. Now, on to Ike and Kennedy. After the Bay of Pigs invasion failed spectacularly, President Kennedy invited Eisenhower to Camp David. There, the former Allied commander and the young president had what is known in the business as a frank exchange. Ike thought Kennedy had bungled. But when the two made it to the microphones, Ike kept his opinion to himself. He told the reporters, I am all in favor of the United States supporting the man who has to carry the responsibility of foreign affairs. Well, that seemed very magnanimous. What a statesman. Well, Ike didn't stick by the president for that long. In 1962, during the campaign, Eisenhower was open and vocal in his criticism of Kennedy. He attacked, quote, the dreary record of the past 21 months. It is too sad to talk about. Why was Ike on a six-state campaign tour? Well, to beat the Bushes for his party, of course. But he also let it be known that he was sore at the attacks from the incumbent president. He said that he has spoken out only because, quote, recently in my home state, we were told by president, the president himself that during eight years of Republican administration, our foreign policy drifted aimlessly about. Kennedy's assertion that the new forceful foreign policy had taken hold was news, said Eisenhower. Ike continued, indeed, it was news to all of us who have been following the news. Eisenhower knew about the old admonition against criticizing a president, particularly on the issue of foreign affairs. He said that he'd been careful to keep foreign policy out of partisan debate, but when a charge is made for purely political purposes, he said, a charge that indeed should be stated in reverse, I must seriously question the advisability of a continued silence. It was a difficult silence for Eisenhower to keep because he believed that He was no fan of Kennedy's. The the biggest belief he had is that he had given Kennedy access to the secret intelligence about the nature of the Soviet nuclear program during the 1960 campaign as a courtesy extended to people who might one day be president. And that even though Kennedy saw that the U.S. was ahead of the Soviet Union in the production of missiles, he nevertheless ran and continued to run on the idea that a missile gap had opened up in terms of the production and um, and stockpiles of weapons of the United States vis-a-vis uh, Russia. Ike also believed that his father had bought the election for him and that his election was merely uh, a trick of television, essentially. He described the press as fawning over Kennedy and that the press treated him in a cultish fashion. Now to Jimmy Carter and, and President Reagan. In October of 1982, former President Jimmy Carter responded, Well, I'll just read you this piece from the New York Times in October of 1982. Former President Jimmy Carter responded to criticism from President Reagan tonight saying that while his administration made mistakes, we did, quote, we did not spend four years blaming our mistakes on our predecessors. Mr. Carter told reporters he was responding to criticism by the president at his news conference Tuesday night on the Carter administration's management of the economy. Mr. Reagan blamed the Carter administration for the current recession and said that when he took office, we found America in the worst economic mess since the days of Franklin Roosevelt. Mr. Carter accused Mr. Reagan of not accepting his responsibilities. The former president said that after his defeat in 1980, he resolved to pledge Mr. Reagan my help, my support when he was ready to accept the awesome responsibilities of the president. My offer still stands, Carter said. When he is ready to accept those responsibilities, I'll be there to help him. This was not the only time uh, Carter uh, criticized President Reagan for his various policies. The most heated moment was when he challenged him on the question of race. Hatred has no place in this country, Carter said. Racism has no place in this country. He was talking about Reagan, and the words were so uh, received so strongly that Jerry Ford came to Reagan's defense. Ford was not, of course, as you whistle-stop listeners will remember, not a, a huge fan of Ronald Reagan's. Ford called Carter's remark about race, quote, one of the lowest, most intemperate assaults ever made by a United States president. So you see from our brief tour of history going back to maybe 100 years ago almost exactly with Teddy Roosevelt. It It is not necessarily a norm that is being broken by President Obama, but he is returning to a norm in the presidency. The question is whether that norm he is returning to is beneficial for the country, whether Roosevelt was right and that a former president owes it as a patriotic duty to criticize the incumbent, or whether George W. Bush is right and whether the patriotic thing is to let the one president at a time rule the nation without the carping from the sidelines of the person who was there before. And as always, it is up to you, the discerning Whistle Stop listener, to decide which of those norms is worth maintaining and which of those norms is vital for the continued progress of the republic. That does it for this edition of Whistle Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes Store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank, the managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas, the executive producer is Steve Lichtai, our whistle stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hinson is the West Coast Bureau Chief of Research for the Whistlestop Enterprises Incorporated. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helped make this episode happen for us on the CBS end. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks.